I'm Rob Trasinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. And what could be more outside the mainstream these days than advocating for free trade? Uh, my guest today is Scott Linsicum. Uh Thanks for coming on, Scott. Well, thanks for having me. And Scott is someone whose brain has probably been hurting continually since about 2015, whenever anybody talks about trade and free trade and uh, the possibility of a trade war. So what I want to talk about today for a few minutes is simply how goes the trade war? Yeah, so um, it's we are right in the middle of it. Um, the... Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, it hasn't been as bad as it, or the, it hasn't. We haven't reached kind of the climax. Right. Um, but well, I, I guess a good way last... to, we should step back and say, what is the trade war? What has actually right. been happening yes. as opposed to what was threatened or what Donald Trump says? On exactly. Trump? So what we've seen in, in 2018 is a, a really dramatic escalation in the United States use of unilateral tariffs outside of our traditional mechanisms. So the United States has, every WTO member, World Trade Organization member has um, mechanisms that are very lawful um, that allow for the imposition of duties. Now, the difference is that starting in, in 2018, the United States started imposing d duties that really were far outside the mainstream. Um, and the, the first ones were on um, uh, washing washing machines and solar panels that was uh, under our safeguards law um, but the real big ones came in March with the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs um, on supposed national security grounds um, those uh, elicited immediate retaliation from our trading partners um, and we now are in a place where all of the steel and aluminum tariffs basically remain in place. Um, and we have a lot of uh, close U.S. trading partners, including Canada, Mexico, and the European Union, retaliating against American exports in an uh, approximately an equivalent amount um, as the uh, uh, to the U.S. tariffs. So that aside, then in July, the United States uh, escalated uh, trade tensions by beginning to impose tariffs on imports from China. Um, starting with $34 billion worth of Chinese imports, 25% uh, tariffs on those imports. Then another $16 billion, again, 25% tariffs. And then just a few weeks ago, the United States imposed 10% tariffs on another uh, $200 billion in Chinese imports. So we're now at approximately $250 billion worth of annual Chinese imports, subject to some sort of unilateral U.S. tariff, um, with... President Trump threatening to apply tariffs to the remaining $250 billion. So we import about $500 billion uh, worth of stuff from China every year. Um, and so, but right now we're, we're halfway there. Um, another important thing to note, though, is that in January, the 10% tariffs are scheduled to increase to 25%. Um, and that's a really big deal because things like currency movements and supply chain management can tend to eat up a 10% tariff. 25% uh, tariff, on the other hand, that's, that's going to start causing pretty, pretty serious pain. One thing I found interesting is how the tariffs are being imposed. You say, you know, in July, we imposed tariffs. Well, that's an executive order decision. 
And it, it, it seems to me that, you know, I don't know the little over the history of this, because it used to be protectionism was very popular. But what they would do to sort of get around it, the, the lawmakers would do to get around it, is they'd say, well, we'll give the president authority to impose tariffs if there's a national security reason. And that was their way of sort of throwing a bone to the unions and the people yeah. who wanted the, the tariffs. But they, with the understanding that the president's not really going to do that anyway, so it's okay. We've thrown them a bone, but we haven't really done anything. And it's almost like that, you know, 30, 40 years of passing the buck and, and kicking the can down the road on that trade issue of, of cutting the difference between the two sides. It's like it's coming back to get us now because Donald Trump said, hey, great, I've got all this unilateral presidential authority. Yeah, yeah. So um, essentially what happened in, in the late 19th century, Congress was in charge of tariff setting. Um, you know, Congress has the constitutional authority to mm -hmm. set tariffs under Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Um, the, the problem was that getting 535 people in Washington to set tariff policy is a very, very bad idea, given the very clear political incentives to go ahead and tax foreign competition, right? So after the Smoot-Hawley tariff debacle, as everyone who's ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off knows about, um, the, the most Congress educational, the greatest to, educational achievement Mark Stein ever ever had, yeah, telling everybody what the Smoot-Hawley exactly. tax is, yeah. So, so the, the, after Smoot-Hawley, Congress began slowly but surely delegating its tariff powers to the president under the assumption that has proven true for the last 70 years until now that the president would be the most free trade guy in the room because the president would not have discrete political constituent interests. He would have the national interest in mind and free trade for both economic and geopolitical reasons tends to be a big winner at the national level. The, the, the issues with trade are typically about discrete intense or, uh, producer harms, worker harms, but at the constituent level. So a steel plant in Pennsylvania, um, whereas we all, you know, the rest of us receive these kind of more modest gains. So the idea was to give the president all of this tariff power because Congress couldn't be trusted with it, and the president could because he was going to be a free trader. So you saw year after year after year, the Congress delegated to the president more and more tariff authority, including under various statutes, like the one used uh, on steel and aluminum, Section 232, like the China Tariffs, Section 301, that are extremely ambiguous, very, very broad. Um, Section 232, for example, which allows for national security tariffs, doesn't even include a definition of national security. So that allows the president to do what he did, which is just basically say, well, economic security is national security, and therefore the steel industry was getting hurt. That hurts our economic security. Therefore, it hurts our national security. Boom, tariff. And because Congress has delegated this authority, the president is relatively unchecked when it comes to anything that can be done quickly to stop the tariffs. So, uh, yes, there have been court cases filed, and those are working through the, the courts. But Congress can't really do much else except pass a law, which you need two uh, chambers to pass the legislation, and then you would need to override an obvious presidential veto. Good luck. And so that has left President Trump relatively unchecked. Um, and it is clearly not what Congress had in mind 
when they were delegating all of this power. Right. So we're talking about things like the, the uh, you're talking about retaliatory tariffs, and that's one of the costs of this, is that we have our, our yeah. major trading partners, who, including many of them are, are close allies of ours, who are now saying, oh, well, you're going to put tariffs, we'll put tariffs. So you get the harm from that. But I've also noticed that, you know, that one of the big laws of free trade is uh, that when you do something to benefit one person over here, it always, by nature, harms somebody else over here. So, for example, it makes a big yeah. difference whether you're a user of steel or a maker of steel. Right. Yeah. So, so you mentioned the retaliatory costs. So, uh, given the way the multilateral trading system works through the World Trade Organization, given the way that the United States is now pretty integrated into the global economy, we have a lot of exports, we have a lot of imports, but our exporters are getting hit by the retaliation. That's very simple. What's not so simple are the is the import side, the consumer costs, because you know it's not like China or Japan or the Europeans are launching steel at us. Every order of steel has a willing American buyer, an individual or a consumer or a company. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, those companies are faced with either paying the tariff, uh, which they pay to the U.S. government, nice big tax bill or paying dramatically higher prices for American steel or aluminum. Steel prices have gone up 25 to 50%. Because uh, American steel producers are, uh, are outnumbered uh, by American steel consumers or metals consumers by 40 to one in terms of workers, uh, far more GDP, all that kind of stuff, you end up having a lot more victims of the protection than beneficiaries. And that is precisely what we've seen so far. We've seen that American consu steel consuming companies, metals consuming companies are getting hammered. And now they are given the choice. And this is, this, there is no free lunch. This is, this is basic economics. So the, the steel consuming companies that, that are importing this, the more expensive steel or paying for more expensive steel in the United States, made in the United States, um, they, have, they have just a few choices. So the first most obvious, they can pass it on to the consumer. That's you and me. So we could just end up seeing higher prices for you know, a refrigerator or a car or whatever. Some estimates have said that you know, if the steel tariff were fully passed on, it would increase the cost of a car by a few hundred dollars. Um, not the end of the world, but certain, certainly I don't want to pay a few hundred dollars to prop up the steel industry. It so all ends up. The, right. The other thing they can do is just eat the cost. And that's actually been what's going on more than passing them on. Um, now, there's two reasons why they're eating the cost. One is because uh, our foreign competitors, uh, American, these American companies' foreign competitors do not face the same steel tariffs, nor so they, they get cheaper steel, problem one. Problem two is they don't face any tariffs on their products sold to the United States. So American companies are left with really little choice but to eat these higher metals costs, input costs. And there's also Chinese inputs subject to tariffs, same, same type of stuff. So the, now, again, that's not just magic beans. They, they have to do something to you know, pay for those additional costs. They can either reduce employment, lower wages, reduce investment, um, or you know, not pay lower dividends. Somebody's going to end up paying for this, and what we're seeing is all of the above. So we've seen a few layoffs in these sectors. We've seen 
uh, a lot of investments that have just been shelved. So company said I was going to invest $300 million in a new plant, but I, I can't right now. There's too much uncertainty. The costs are too high. Um, we've seen a couple bankruptcies, so companies just simply go out of business. They, they just can't afford the, the, to compete. Um, and then we've seen other uh, you know, shareholder issues, dividend issues, that kind of stuff. So, so these costs are, are kind of rippling through the economy. And we actually have seen them start to show up. Now, that's all at a micro level. But we've actually seen this start to show up in kind of the more macroeconomic data. Um, the third quarter GDP numbers that just came out uh, a few weeks ago showed a dramatic drop in investment by American firms. We've seen also a, a significant drop in foreign direct investment in the United States. Now, certainly that's not, not all due to the tariffs, but you combine the anecdotal evidence of companies telling their shareholders, companies telling the Federal Reserve, telling the, the, the Trump administration they're not gonna be able to invest, backed up by actual macroeconomic data, and you have a big mess on your hands. And we haven't even gotten to where the real retaliatory tariffs have fallen, which is agriculture. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so the farmers are getting it every which way because they're paying more for things like farm machinery. And, you know, there's a lot, I, believe it or not, I didn't really know this until this whole thing came up. But, you know, farmers actually use a lot of metal as well, whether oh, yeah. it's aluminum or silos or whatever. So farmers are getting hit on the on the import side, but they're also getting hammered on the export side because there, there's America, we export a lot, uh, believe it or not, but we export a disproportionately large amount of agriculture that's produced here. We essentially produce a lot more uh, farm goods than we consume. So the obvious place for our trading partners to, uh, to hit uh, the most sensitive area, especially given farmers' political clout in Washington, is on our, in our agriculture sector. So what we've seen is uh, the biggest example is Chinese retaliation against American soybeans. Mm -hmm. um, China is the largest soybean market in the world, and Chinese purchases of soybeans have essentially stopped. And there is no – it is – you know, soybeans are a global commodity, but there is no market – or markets big enough to absorb all of the Chinese demand or replace all of that Chinese demand. So uh, American soybean prices have plummeted. Um, American farmers are being forced to store them or sell them at a deep discount. Um, but other sectors, uh, tree nuts, for example, um, our, our almonds and others out in California are getting hammered. Uh, dairy, believe it or not, is getting hit pretty hard. Um, cheese sales to Mexico, very big deal, um, have, have collapsed. So all of this adds up. And, and, and what you're seeing, and I think we've seen it actually in the 2018 midterm results, is a lot more losers from the trade mm -hmm. war than winners, uh, both on the import side and the export side. Um, and sure, you know, there's no doubt there are a few winners. There have been a couple idled steel plants that have been brought online. Um, there are Reuters estimates about 3,000 to 4,000 new steel workers have been hired. But I mean, that's just a drop in the bucket in, in terms of the total U.S. economy. And it also pales in comparison to the economic loss we're seeing throughout 
throughout the United States. And then the last thing to note about those jobs is that they're coming at a massive cost. Um, so, you know, I wrote a paper a couple of years ago looking at all these different academic studies that found that, you know, American protectionism in the past um, saved some jobs, but did so at a cost of approximately $600,000 per worker per year. Now, that's 12 times the average wow. manufacturing wage, right? Yeah, 600000 It's actually looking a lot worse for steel and aluminum right now. I did some back-of-the-napkin uh, estimates, and even assuming the best-case scenario for the number of jobs gained so far, and you're looking at a million dollars a job, maybe even more. So, um, yeah, you know, it's it's not that you can't protect some jobs. I mean, government's very big and strong, and they can do all sorts of things with tariffs and subsidies and the rest. It just you have to ask about the cost, and the cost is massive. Well, one thing I find interesting about it is that is I find that the argument for protectionism is not so much economic because ultimately there is no economic argument for it. You go talk about these calculations, but it's really a cultural argument. And I find, especially with, with, with President Trump, that it tends to be sort of whatever, whatever industry was dominant when he was a kid that he remembers as being a key to American greatness. You, know, it, it's, you can see the psychological impact this has. You know, if you don't have steel, you don't have a country. If you don't have cars, you don't have a country. It's steel yeah. and cars and the big heavy industries. And part of the question I have is, is this a trade where we actually want to win? Because, you know, one of the most profound principles of free market economics uh, and the economics of free trade that I think most people don't understand is the idea of comparative advantage, which is even if you can make something as well as the Chinese, even if you can make it better than the Chinese, if your real strengths lie in making another product, which is you make fabulously more productively than anybody else, that is what you should be producing. You should let right. them make the cars, even if even if you can make better cars, you should yep. let them make the cars. So in a way, are right. we basically trying to preserve the jobs of Donald Trump's youth rather than at the expense of the jobs of the future that are possibly better praying and more productive? Yeah, there's there's certainly some truth to that. I mean, just to recap what you said, the, the truth about trade is that it's not really about more jobs. It's about better jobs. So we essentially, through the last 40, 50 years, have traded labor-intensive, mm -hmm. unsafe, unclean, you know, kind of dirty, uh, rote manual labor jobs for Especially lower jobs skilled, in high-skill manual... Right, low-skill, less productive jobs. Things Think like old school textile manufacturing, right? So we've traded those away and we've replaced them with jobs in high skill manufacturing. So today's manufacturing, we still have a lot of manufacturing here, but it requires engineering background, um, computer skills. It, so we have high skill manufacturing. We also, of course, have tons of services. And that's really where you know America's great strengths lie. Uh, we actually have a, a large trade surplus for those people who care about trade surplus. We have a big trade surplus in services. Um, and so what you've seen over, of, of course, a longer period of time is a shift, a shift in the U.S. economy that's really happened, I mean, starting back to the 1940s, um, is a, the, the workforce it has shifted out of manufacturing and into services. And that's been a pretty steady decline throughout the period. So um, because of that, you ask the right question. You know, do we really want to save um, an old, inefficient steel industry? And, you know, the fact is, 
the United States steel industry was was still had about 70 to 75% market share before these tariffs. It was still producing about 90 million tons of steel. We weren't we weren't losing a steel industry, but we were seeing old inefficient steel mills like the ones that just got brought back online. Okay. Um going out of business. And, you know, yes, that disruption is hard for human beings, but it is disruption we want, not just in steel, but in everything. You know, Americans cheer free market competition. We want there to be not just Amazon, but a Walmart and, and, and you know, a Target and the other, these other companies pushing each other to be better, to provide us with better stuff for less money. Um, we want those same types of magical, invisible competitive forces to exist in the manufacturing sector or in in trade in general and trade contributes to that a lot and it's brought us all sorts of awesome things better standard of living better jobs all of that so so we don't want this to succeed um i personally would not like to work uh, in a textile mill um but the truth is you ask people so there, there was an article a couple of years ago written really great article from a kid who lived in hickory north carolina and the Wall Street Journal had written this very sad piece about how Hickory had been destroyed by Chinese manufacturing because gone were the textile and furniture jobs of these citizens' youth. You know, now all mm -hmm. these factories were boarded up. What they failed to mention is that Hickory was actually doing a pretty darn good job of adapting and moving on to other things, be it logistics or high-skill manufacturing, the rest. Um, you go to places like Spartanburg, South Carolina, that has a shiny new BMW plant that churns out more BMWs than any place on the planet. Um, well, Spartanburg used to be a textile town. So, you know, these types of of moves are good, um, and and they are not something to be uh, to be retarded just out of these kind of grandiose nostalgic visions of you know giant blast furnaces and flash dance the movie and that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I was thinking I was thinking more Springsteen songs. I think that's more the, the feel of it. Songs, and... you know, Matt, Tom Cruise, all the right moves, right? You know, great. No, but, great but Spring, Springsteen stuff. specifically, Springsteen specifically has like the implicit theme of most of his songs is that he peaked in high school. Right, it's all about how much everything was better when he was a kid, and, and back in and the old is, days. And yeah, in, and in Trump's world, there is this romanticism, this idea that um, that for some reason there is more value in a dirty, low-skill uh, manufacturing job than there is in a services job that is also uh, blue-collar, right. but simply not. At a steel mill with you know the giant molten steel coming out of the blast furnace and all that kind of nonsense. I mean, we still have a ton of blue collar jobs in this country, and in fact, there are far more blue collar job openings than we actually have workers right now. Whether it be in construction or the trades or logistics and transportation, you know, moving all the stuff we trade. So we still have these jobs. It's just again, they're different. And um, you know, the the fact that some of our political leaders seem insistent on uh, this kind of stagnationism is is really sad. Regardless of whether we want to put, whether we want to win this war, do you think it's even possible to put global capitalism back, you know, put that genie back in the bottle? Yeah. Well, and that's another great point. Uh, you know, so protectionism not only has these immense economic costs, this is actually a t-shirt 
I made. But it also... Oh, by the way, by the way feel free to, if you want charts and graphs in this, feel free to send them. I'll stick them in the video. I, I am, I'm a market I you cannot flood. picture the t-shirt and a link for people to buy it. There we go, great. Uh, but so, you know, the protectionist is not only are these big economic costs, seen and unseen economic costs, but the fact is that protectionism actually is really bad at achieving its primary policy aims. So you look back and you see that protected industries don't magically revive uh, because the producers don't actually reinvest their windfall profits in the companies. They end up profit taking, right? Um, or you have a situation where they just simply are, you know, clinging to an inefficient industry that that no amount of investment is going to save. Um, you also see that the workers, you see, we're losing manufacturing workers um, mainly due to competition or technology, excuse me. But um, there's certainly some import competition issues in there as well. And then finally, you see protected firms coming back to the trough. Man, the the, the protection goes away, and they're back two years later, needing more protection or subsidies or anything else. I mean, the steel industry has benefited from some type of import protection for going on 40 years now right. and here they are again now saying that their existence is a national security threat i mean give me a break right so so when you and then you look at oh well no trump's just negotiating well even on the negotiating side uh the results through history are not very good but, but um, and they a, haven't been very good so far he got a new nafta right with, with a new that name <laughs> right that is almost the same as, or very, very similar to the old NAFTA. Um, and was something that Canada and Mexico, in terms of modernization, wanted to do anyway. And they did it, of course, through the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Right. So the, the fact is that protectionism just is not a very, it's not, it's, it's costly, but it also just doesn't work very well in, in its primary policy mm -hmm. aims. And that even leaves aside the notion of, um, of all the cronyism and all the political corruption. You know, um, Milton Friedman once described, and I paraphrase, protectionism as kind of the gateway drug to big government authoritarianism. And we've actually seen in the past, you know, there are tons of examples in the 19th century, early 20th century of, you know, I talked about the congressional tariff setting, ridiculous corruption surrounding tariff policy. Well, let's fast forward to today. Now you have um, Wilbur Ross, uh, the Secretary of Commerce, threatening to go after uh, speculators, anti-social speculators, because they're, they're, of course, profiting from these higher steel prices in the United States. You have uh, a couple legislators in Congress want to have aluminum price controls. We have um, an exclusion process uh, whereby producers can petition the U.S. government for relief from the tariffs that the U.S. government has imposed. So you got to hire a lobbyist. you got to do all that kind of great stuff. Lobbying expenditures, speaking of that, on trade have exploded in the last uh, 18 months. Um, the president has funneled about $14 billion worth of extra subsidies to American farmers that are hit by the trade war. Uh, he's expanded the ethanol program. I mean, I, you go on. I find on, that right. I find the subsidies to the farmers interesting because here's the pro-free market, pro-individual responsibility party supposedly saying, "Okay, we're going to kill your market so you can't sell things, but right. then we're going to subsidize you." Uh, you know, it was Reagan who said, "What did he say? If if uh, if it moves, regulated. If it's if it uh, if it keeps moving, tax. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulated. If it stops moving, subsidize it." And that's what exactly. he's basically done to agriculture. 
It's exactly what's going on. And and so you go over and over and you see that the the political dysfunction that, that this stuff is creating is, is again, it's just right out of the textbooks. There's nothing new um, here. It's just uh, we're reliving history. I, I guess my last question then is, how did we lose this battle? Because there was something of a consensus for free trade. I mean, you know, uh, the Democrats, it, I remember NAFTA, how it came into being, the Democrats uh, under Clinton moved to the right and uh, passed a free trade bill, which I thought would never happen. Yeah. Uh, so how is it that we sort of, we had this sort of international consensus, all of these rounds of free trade agreements. How is it that we lost, or at least are losing at the moment, this argument? Yeah, so, well, two things, one is, it's funny, if you look at the actual public opinion polling, we're not losing the argument. So trade and globalization are more popular right at this moment than at any time in American history. It's actually quite surprising, I think, to a lot of people, given our political leadership. And that's really the problem, political leadership. What we've seen in the past 15 years or so is a rather steady erosion in politicians willing to take kind of the politically courageous uh, free trade position. Because let's face it, free trade's complicated. It's counterintuitive. Um, there are very easy ways to pay off domestic constituents and get what you want in trade protectionism. Well, starting in the George Bush administration, um, you know, we saw congressional Democrats move hard against trade. Um, and they did so for purely political reasons. Um, at the same time, then um, President Obama started pushing for uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership late in his term, and that got Republicans in on the, oh, let's pretend to be protectionist game. And then Trump came along and really blew it all up. Um, and then you combine that with some legitimate economic issues. You know, China's rise has been very disruptive. Um, and of course, at the same time that trade and technology are being more disruptive, um, our politicians are doing everything in their power to make um, things uh, less dynamic, whether it be through occupational licensing or other other types of labor regulation, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we have this confluence of, of some economic issues, but, but surmountable ones, combined with an, an almost insurmountable political wave. Um, and, and so we're in a really weird place right now. Now, I mean, I think there's some hope because like I said, you know, the public is generally not down with straight protectionism. Republicans right now support tariffs, but they do so more because Trump does. And you, most Republicans will say they only support them not as protectionism, but in, as a means to achieving free trade. Right. And then in that regard, even Trump himself, this dyed-in-the-wool, 30-, 40-year protectionist, the guy who has, has never seen a tariff he didn't like, has shifted in the last six to eight months from defending his steel and aluminum tariffs steel and aluminum tariffs on purely protectionist grounds. You mentioned, you know, you can't have a country if you don't have a steel industry, all that kind of stuff. These days, he doesn't say that very much anymore. Instead, what does he do? He says, these are a negotiating tool for me to get freer trade. Right. So it seems that even our protectionists are making free trade arguments. So that's a little silver lining. I mean, and look, I mean, I'm not holding out hope that, you know, I'm going to wake up in two years and all of a sudden <laughs> we're going to have like, you know, uh, free trade paradise. But it, it is interesting that I think that, as you mentioned, kind of the forces of globalization, all this cool stuff, this smartphones I'm talking to you right now on, all of this stuff has really created an expectation and the quality of life that Americans are just not very willing to give up, and for good reason. And for that reason, for this kind of bottom-up pressure to support the global trading system, I think, will, will continue. The only thing, though, we need is more checks on our political class. 
Well, I take heart from the fact that this is a battle that we've won before, and hopefully we can win it again. Uh, my guest today has been Scott Lincecum of the Cato Institute and a tireless defender of free trade. Thanks for talking to me, Scott. And thank you Thanks for exactly listening. Rob. This has been Salon of the Refused. I'm Rob Drasinski. You can support us at Patreon at uh, Salon of the Refused. And you can find out more of my writing and my commentary at the Trasinski Letter, trasinskiletter.com. Thank you for listening.